Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from October 2019 on the secrets of birds. Science cafes provide an opportunity for audiences to discuss current research topics with experts in an informal setting. To find out about future science cafes, please visit ummnh.org. I'm Amy Harris. I'm director of the Museum of Natural History. And I just want to say how wonderful it is to see so many of you back at the Science Cafe after a long break. Um, welcome back. And as always, we thank Connor O'Neill's for making this space available to us. And we do have a sponsor for tonight's Science Cafe. It's a, a couple who have supported the museum in many ways for many years. Unfortunately, they're not here at this moment, but if one or both of them arrive later, we'll introduce them. That's Dave and Andrea Scott. So in their absence, let's thank them. So we've been a little busy at the museum. <laughs> Many of you have come to see it, and if you haven't, we hope you'll come. In April, we opened half of our exhibits, the planetarium, the store, science forum, the atrium. And on November 10th, we're opening the other half of the exhibits and two public labs. So mark your calendars. Um, the 10th is the public opening. We have special preview events for members. Nora is waiting to help you become a member if you'd like to come see it ahead of the public. And um, this Saturday, we have a special program called a Scientist Spotlight. We have, Kira, what would you say, maybe 20? There are a lot. I saw the program. 20 or 25 scientists who have gone through our science communication fellows program, and they will be on hand to tell you about their research and invite you to have conversations with them. I jokingly call it speed dating with scientists, <laughs> but I don't tell them that. So anyway, it's a chance to have conversations and find out what people are doing in their research. It's really fun. So that's Saturday between 10 and 4. There are two groups from 10 to 1 and 1 to 4. So on that note, with you marking November 10th in your calendars, I'll hand it over to Kira. Hi there, and welcome again. Um, I was going to say, did you miss me? But there's so many people here. I have to assume that you guys just can't get enough of the Science Cafe. I'm so pleased uh, to have two great guests uh, this evening. Um, so, um, but I want, in case there's anybody who hasn't been to a Science Cafe, I want to let you know how it goes. Um, we have a couple of brief presentations from our guests in the beginning. Um, so they'll be about 10 to 15 minutes each, although I, I hear you guys are going to pass the mic back and forth, so it may not be just one and then the other. They may go back and forth. Um, and then we'll have some time for discussion at your tables uh, in the middle. And then the last half hour or so we'll spend in a moderated group discussion. Uh, I also need to let you know that Lon is here photographing this event. He's right over there. Um, if you let me know, if you really, really don't want to be in a photograph, uh, I will try not to include photographs of you in things that we publish. Um, um, but uh, yeah, but if, if 20 of you come up right now and say that, then Lon might as well go home. So give him a little bit of latitude, please. Um, so um, thanks again to Dave and Andrea Scott. They're still not here. I still don't see them, but I am very, very grateful. And uh, Andrea specified to us, oh, I want to sponsor the first one when you start back up again. Uh, so I thought that was a really sweet thing. Um, so I'm going to introduce our speakers um, who are wonderful. Um, I, I'll start with Shane Dubay who is right here. Um, Shane, yeah, go ahead and welcome him. That's right. That's proper. Shane is an evolutionary ecologist, ornithologist, and environmental scientist. His research looks at how environmental pressures and environmental change impact the ecology of birds. And he's particularly interested in how birds are capable of responding to changing environments. He's also interested in how we can leverage natural history collections 
to revisit what we think we know about the past. Shane completed his PhD at the University of Chicago, and in fall 2018, he joined the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the U of M as a Michigan Fellow. So once again, please welcome Shane Dubay. And Ben Winger, over here. is assistant professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology and curator of birds in the Museum of Zoology at the University of Michigan. He grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, where he became interested in birds and bird watching at an early age. He attended Cornell University for his undergraduate degree and received his PhD from the University of Chicago and the Field Museum. I'm also a U of C alum, I just want to put that in there. I don't know anything about birds, though. Um, he has been at U of M since 2015 and considers it a great privilege to get to teach ornithology, his lifelong passion to students. As a researcher, Ben has broad interest in avian evolution, ecology, and behavior, but has a particular focus on the evolution of bird migration. Please welcome Ben Winger. Okay, well, um, thank you very much. Uh, I can, is this mic working all right? Everyone hear me all right? All right. Uh, well, thanks to Kira and Amy for inviting us to participate. This is really fun, and we've been looking forward to it for a while. Uh, this is actually my uh, first science cafe, uh, and thanks to all of you for coming. Um, so we're going to talk this evening about biodiversity collections uh, with a focus on bird collections. And so this image here of these uh, colorful tanagers in these drawers uh, is just a small sample of the research specimens that we have of birds at the Museum of Zoology um, here in Ann Arbor. And if you've visited any of the great natural history museums in the country, the American Museum, Smithsonian, the Field Museum, uh, what you're seeing on display is just a tiny fraction of the specimens and artifacts that uh, the museum holds, uh, usually less than 1%. Uh, and the same is true here uh, at our Natural History Museum. Uh, we have great biodiversity collections. Um, today you have to go really behind the scenes to see these as our uh, collections are actually housed in a, in a different uh, specialized facility uh, than, the, than the new Natural History Museum. Uh, but we have these collections that uh, researchers from all over the world uh, come to use and contribute to. And so <clears throat> these collections are the basis for a lot of our knowledge about biodiversity. So if you open a field guide to birds or other animals, a lot of the paintings there were originally made based on specimens and collections. Our understanding of how many species there are in the world of uh, any plant and animal group uh, is largely anchored to the specimens that we have in collections. And they're uh, not just objects in drawers, they're uh, active uh, research tools that we um, are constantly using. So in my research, uh, my students and I work on a variety of topics where we actually uh, gather data from these uh, specimens. And so the, the, the uh, utility is myriad. If you could uh, advance the slide, please. Uh, so just to give you a sense of uh, uh, where we're at here, so you keep going, Kira. On the, so the <clears throat> to put us here in Ann Arbor in context, the American Museum of Natural History uh, has about a million specimens of birds. Uh, the Smithsonian has 650,000. Uh, Field Museum has half a million. Uh, Harvard, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and Michigan, we have uh, the fifth largest uh, collection of birds in the country uh, with over 200,000. And uh, our collections are not just birds, of course. Uh, we have phenomenal collections of fish and uh, reptiles and amphibians. And so this is a, a tremendous resource for uh, students at the university, for researchers, and it's really an internet de international destination. But uh, I put these numbers here not to uh, sort of brag about them, but to highlight that there are a lot of things in these collections and it's important to think about what the value is. Now I could talk 
uh, all night about all the different kinds of uh, value that these specimens have, but we're actually going to focus on one particular uh, value that these specimens have. If you could advance the slide, thanks. Which is that these collections are windows into the past that help us understand how and why our world has changed and continues to change. And so we're gonna, Shane and I are gonna tell you two uh, quick stories tonight about how our collections here in Michigan and elsewhere are uh, showing some surprising things about uh, changes in birds. All right, thank you all for being here tonight. I'm excited to talk about um, natural history collections and um, some of my work with them. So natural history collections are powerful resources for tracking environmental pollutants through time um, because they're durable snapshots of the past environments from which these specimens are drawn. And the specimens weren't necessarily collected with that intent, but as new environmental challenges arise, we often lack historical data to address these. So uh, these collections offer us a piece of past environments, allowing us to revisit these um, places and time. So I'm first gonna talk about some, well, three examples of this work that I find particularly powerful to highlight, and then how my work, and specifically with the collections here in Michigan, um, fit into that. So some of you may already be familiar with this story of eggshell thinning and DDT, um, a, a pesticide that was used, it, it formed the, um, a critical part of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Um, and the story is that um, scientists use egg, um, egg collections and a time series of egg collections to track how um, pesticides that we're using in agriculture, um, how these pesticides were responsible for um, thinning eggshells in raptors like um, peregrine falcons, um, uh, bald eagles, and essentially these, these Raptors, when they go to sit on a nest, the eggshells were so thin that they just crush them. And this was responsible for a lot of declines in these populations. So through these collections, um, we're able to, scientists were able to show that um, these pesticides were responsible. And once regulations were put into place, um, there's been some really remarkable rebounds in these populations. And just earlier today, um, Kira sent us a photo of a bald eagle sitting um, in a tree in Ipsy just outside one of the elementaries there. And I believe in the past 10 years now, bald eagles have been, um, been observed in, I think, 49 of the 50 states. The, the only one they haven't been observed in is Hawaii. Um, so we've actually had a, a, a sort of a rapid bounce back. Um, next slide, please, Kira. So the next little vignette is of the ivory gull and what the ivory gull and specimens um, of ivory gulls have been able to tell us about um, rises in mercury contamination in the North Atlantic and some other species um, have been used to look at the Pacific, but the ivory gull specifically, it's at the top of the food chain and that's because it's a scavenger. So the ivory gull is um, feeding on um, carcasses of marine mammals and uh, incorporating into its body, bioaccumulating heavy metals like mercury from the water, from the, the fishes that um, the marine mammals are eating and then the ivory gall is eating. So there's a study a few years back that showed, um, that used uh, feathers, a time series of, of feathers from specimens, um, some of them from the museum here here at the university to track changes in mercury contamination. And, and why does that matter? Because mercury has um, not just consequences on animals, but also human health impacts and um, in sort of our food chain as well. The next slide, please, Kira. And then this little, la the last vignette is, um, I find the, maybe this is the most acutely terrifying. And this was a study with barn swallows that showed um, after the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in, in the 80s, there were increased mutation rates in the DNA of barn swallows. So the scientists looked at before and after um, 
specimens from before and after, and we're able to determine that um, the effects of radiation were having these dramatic impacts, and not just impacts on the individuals, but these are heritable impacts that they were passing down to their young. And similar stories have been shown in, in, um, in mice in southern Ontario. The closer you are to a paper mill, the more likely these mice are um, have these mutations. I mean, these, these are areas in the industrial Midwest, uh, southern Ontario, the places that we currently live. So the way my work fits into this is, is I'm generally interested in the, the broader themes of trying to reconstruct and track pollutants through time using sort of creative methods and natural history collections. So it might not look like it, but these two specimens that are uh, on the screen right now, they're both field sparrows. They were both collected from the greater Chicago area, but the only difference is that they were collected 90 years apart. So the top bird is physically coated in soot particulate. So I'll interchangeably refer to this as black carbon, and black carbon is the byproduct of inefficient burning of organic matter like fossil fuels, um, coal, and this top bird highlights the soiled bird in the top. It highlights a time in our recent past when coal smoke engulfed industrial cities in the US manufacturing belt, cities like Chicago, Detroit, Pittsburgh, um, St. Louis. And um, you can see this from this image. It's pretty conspicuous. We can, we can look at this, we can pull out a drawer of specimens and see these changes. We can line birds up and we can see changes through time. But we can also look using a high-powered microscope and actually look at um, the particles themselves. So these are the particles that um, have huge impacts on sort of respiratory health. Um, so the, the middle image is just zoomed in from the, from the left. And this shows these tiny aggregates of black carbon spheres that these are small enough that they can pass through sort of our lung blood barrier. And uh, a recent study, it actually came out a month ago, has confirmed something that we already knew, that this, um, these particles can actually be transferred from, uh, in pregnant women from mothers to um, the fetus. And we still don't know what those consequences are yet. But then the right image shows a nice clean feather um, without soot on it. So we thought that, I wonder if we could use these specimens to reconstruct um, carbon emissions, like um, soot emissions in the US manufacturing belt. So in this image, the, left, the five left horn larks are from Chicago, the greater Chicago area from the um, first two decades of the 1900s, and the five right horned larks are from the same area, but um, 60 years later, so after 1960. So we thought if we just scaled this up to hundreds of specimens, maybe we could get a, a general sense of, of what black carbon emissions were like, and why is that important? Well, black carbon has recently been uh, recognized as a major contributor to climate change, only second to um, only second to carbon dioxide, and uh, so so building these sort of emissions inventories back into the past are critical for understanding its effects on um, not just human health but um, black carbon's role in sort of past climate change and effectively modeling future climate scenarios, and. Um, before the mid, before really the mid-century, so before um, 1950, we really weren't monitoring air quality in any systematic way. But we know from um, anecdotal evidence, we know from um, newspaper clippings, that sort of the, the soot in our atmosphere was the worst um, much before that period. I mean, the, the soot in our atmosphere from the first part of the 1900s, we look at newspaper clippings, those are not the skies around Ann Arbor right now. Those are not the skies around Chicago. Um, so we thought by building this time series, we could really um, look at relative trends through time. And I'd like to shift your attention to 
Um, the handout that's on, on your paper right now, or sorry, on your table, this is the handout that has the graph. So I'll walk you through this, and there's, there's kind of a lot going on in here, but this is really the big result of our study. And um, so from left to right is year, from 1880 to, to present, and then from top to bottom, you can think of that as um, sootiness. So at the bottom is a clean bird, at the top is a soiled bird covered in soot. So the, um, don't worry about what z-score is right now. It was just a way in which we could um, combine different species to standardize. But um, each one of those little gray points is a single individual. And then the black line is a trend line that we fit through. So the other two lines on this figure, the orange line is coal consumption in the US, that's government data that, that we used. And then the purple line, or blue line, um, that's our previous best estimate. And this previous best estimate was a pretty innovative um, in its own right, and it used, essentially it's a predictive model that, um, or it's called a predictive model that uses, essentially with this type of fuel burned with this type of furnace, how much soot would it have emitted? And, but the issue with this is, the further you go back in time, the data becomes more uncertain. And that's really where our study, which is the black line, deviates from this, our previous best estimate. And that's showing that in the first two decades of the 1900, we have previously underestimated the amount of black carbon that we are emitting into the atmosphere. And, but that, but what, what I really want to point, point you to is at 1960, so before 1960, um, emissions were closely tied to coal consumption in the US. So our lines track relative trends. Um, they do about the same thing, but after 1960, there is um, coal consumption, or sorry, um, black carbon emissions are decoupled from coal consumption. And three things are really happening around the 1960s that facilitate that. So first, cities began subsidizing harder coals, which burn cleaner, but were more, um, more expensive. Second, cities began transitioning to alternative fuel sources, mainly petroleum and natural gas. And I'm not here to say that petroleum and natural gas um, don't have their issues. Um, they most certainly do, but in terms of the amount of black carbon that we're actually emitting into the atmosphere, um, those fuels do burn cleaner. And then third, electricity production in the US shifted away from small coal-powered steam boilers to more efficient centralized power plants. Yeah, so, so soot emissions in the US took decades to, or sorry, soot mitigation in the US took decades to achieve, but proved relatively straightforward. You just regulate the types of fuels consumed and promote affordable fuel alternatives. And that remains just as valid of a lesson today as we attempt to transition entirely away from, from fossil fuels. So um, I'm gonna wrap up in a second. And I've talked mostly tonight about um, time, so tracking tracking sort of change through time. But with these specimens, there's also location data. So there's a spatial component. And this is kind of the future of where, where my work is going and where I think a lot of the real value is. So this is a map of um, mer mercury from our waterways in Michigan um, that was sampled in the early 2000s. And we can use specimens, not just for, um, to track mercury, but black carbon, lead, these other, these other environmental contaminants that um, are of interest and have human health impacts. We can try to use specimens to reconstruct these spatial maps, not just for present day. I mean, we have better ways to, to build these, these maps today, but we can use the specimens to go back in time to build these spatial maps. Um, 
and look at how that relates to um, population growth, um, industry, where people are living, um, what communities are most vulnerable um, to, and, and have increased levels of exposure to certain pollutants. And um, I'm gonna pass the mic to Ben in a second. I'm uh, excited to continue this discussion with you all tonight, so thank you. All right, thanks, Shane. All right, so I'm gonna keep us in the, in the Midwest here. Uh, and tell another, another story. Um, so uh, many people have probably had a bird hit their window of their house uh, at one time or another. Uh, and this probably happened during the daytime, I'm guessing. You're sitting there and thunk, uh, bird hit your window. But in, uh, if you live in a large city, uh, so in Chicago uh, or Toronto or any uh, cities that experience a lot of bird migration, uh, the, the major uh, driver of these collisions is actually the artificial light at night. So this image is of Chicago lit up at night. And most migratory birds actually fly at night during their spring and fall migrations. And when they're confronted with this artificial light, uh, they become disoriented. And for reasons that we don't fully understand, they're actually attracted to this light. And so cities, uh, big cities like Chicago here experience a lot of avian mortality from birds that get drawn into these lights and subsequently hit buildings or they get drawn into the lights and then the next day they're uh, found, they're downtown, they can't find uh, anywhere to go and they end up flying into reflective glass. Uh, if you could advance the slide. Uh, so this uh, has been recognized for um, many years as a problem. And uh, Shane and I both did our uh, graduate work at the Field Museum, shown there in the forefront. Uh, and the Field Museum has been, for a long time, partnering with uh, citizen science organizations, uh, the Chicago Bird Collision Monitors, and a group called Lights Out Chicago um, that, that monitors these bird collisions there. And I'll talk uh, shortly about similar efforts we have going on here. Uh, and the role of the museum here uh, has been to build awareness, but also except that these birds that have died from collisions as research specimens into the collections. The idea being that this is an unfortunate source of mortality and we need to learn about how to stop it, but the uh, birds should not just be thrown away. They should be um, basically made available for research so we can learn things. If you could advance the slide. Uh, so this is at actually at a pretty large scale. So. Uh, just from the monitoring that goes in, on in Chicago, more than 3,000 uh, birds are found by people. This is uh, only a fraction of what actually hits buildings and brought to the Field Museum uh, every year. Uh, and similar dynamics are happening, as I said, in Toronto, Houston, um, cities with a lot of bright light in, in migratory flyways. Mainly our common migratory birds, so uh, at this point in 20. 19, there's probably 15,000 white-throated sparrows that have been brought into the Field Museum. So quite uh, astonishing numbers there. Uh, so what can, we, what can we learn from all these specimens, or what have we learned? Well, uh, rather um, extraordinarily, the, the collection staff at uh, the Field Museum didn't just accept the specimens and, and prepare them and put them into the drawers, but they actually, as they're coming in, uh, since the late 1970s have been measuring uh, the morphology of each one. So how long the wing is, how long the legs are, and the beak, and so forth. And that has led to a data set of more than 75,000 specimens of more than 50 bird species uh, through time over the past 40 years. You can keep going, please. Uh, and so, uh, I became interested in this, and my research group here at Michigan has been uh, looking at these data, and we're currently uh, finishing up an analysis where we uh, are able to show that from these birds that were brought in by volunteer monitors, monitoring bird collisions and brought to the museum, that we know that almost all of the migratory birds that migrate through Chicago are actually shrinking. Okay, they're getting smaller in their body size. So this 
uh, plot here um, shows the year on the bottom, and then the y-axis there is a, a measurement of the leg, the length of the leg in millimeters. And if you can squint, you can see that all of these species uh, shown at the bottom, just 10 here, uh, are ever so slightly declining. They've lost about a millimeter off of their legs, which we think is an indication of their overall body size shrinking. So why would this be? Uh, well, we've learned from other research, uh, experimental research, that uh, warming temperatures actually yield smaller bodies in a, in a wide variety of animals. So this here is the zebra finch, which is kind of like the lab rat of birds, um, used in a variety of uh, mainly neurological studies. And uh, folks have uh, actually done experiments where they've warmed up zebra finch nests uh, in a lab in a controlled environment. And they've been able to show that nests where, that were, um, where the chicks were incubated in a high ambient temperature, uh, that the adult body size, the weight of the bird, ended up being smaller. And I won't go into more detail there, but uh, we can talk uh, later if you're interested about uh, why that relationship might be. So this has led to a uh, hypothesis that, well, if we know that warming temperature yields smaller bodies, and we know that birds over the past 40 years from more than 50 species are shrinking, uh, could this be connected to warming temperatures? So we actually uh, looked at these data. We, we figured out the, um, the, the trends in temperature uh, in the places where all these birds spend the summer, and we compared that to fluctuations in their body size from the collision data. And you can see here that uh, the summer temperatures of these birds overall is going up but it's not a constant uh, increase. There are some fluctuations. And the body size is uh, basically going down, but there are some fluctuations there as well. And essentially, anytime there are really hot summers where the temperature gets really high, the birds uh, that are produced that year are smaller than the years where there are uh, cooler temperatures. Um, Looks like I'm missing some information from this uh, slide here, so we'll just actually <laughs> uh, go right on by. But the point I uh, wanted to make there is that we only see these uh, fluctuations. These are very, very, very subtle fluctuations. We only see this because people have consistently been monitoring this pattern and bringing them in. If we just had two time points or 10 time points even, uh, we would completely miss this pattern. OK, so the story ends up being a little more complicated. Uh, which is that although the bodies of these birds we think are getting smaller and we think that this is driven by warming summer temperatures over the past 40 years, their wings are getting longer, which is really strange. And uh, I won't tell you right now why that's happening, uh, in part because we don't yet know why that's happening. Uh, but this is a question that we can discuss because we, we think we have some interesting ideas about why it is that when birds are getting smaller, their wings might be getting longer. So, uh, yeah. Uh, that's a great, so are the wings getting more narrow? Uh, we don't know the answer to that, but uh, it's possible. Yeah. Um, so with that, um, oh, I do want to mention, uh, of course, our work going on here. So uh, building collisions are an issue pretty much everywhere in Ann Arbor included. Uh, now, the building, bird building collisions that we see here are driven less by artificial light, uh, just because by virtue of the fact that we don't have quite as much artificial light at night as some other places. Um, but uh, shiny buildings do uh, yield dead birds, and there are groups here, uh, Washtenaw Safe Passage is one, uh, that coordinate volunteer efforts to actually monitor and try and figure out where there are problematic buildings and things that we can do to mitigate the problem. Uh, and then here at the Museum of Zoology, we do accept uh, those specimens for research, uh, but it takes a lot of work to prepare them, uh, many hours per specimen, actually. Um, and so we also accept volunteers, if anyone uh, is interested in learning how to do this and contributing to our collections here. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Kira. So thank you. All right, so this is a great time to look at those questions on your table and talk to one another. 
Um, and our speakers will be circulating throughout the room. You can check in with your wait staff and fill your glasses again. Um, and so we will come back together for a group conversation at about 7 o'clock. Okay? Enjoy. I heard some great conversations uh, out there, and I w I'd like to incorporate I'd like to incorporate some of the questions I heard into a group conversation. Um, so um, I will be moderating our group discussion, um, and I'll, I'll let speakers know when you have the floor and when you don't. Um, I'm going to pass this cordless mic around, and I'll ask you to use it when you're talking uh, to the group. Um, and please use it to also to enable those with hearing impairments to hear and so that we can record your conversation for later podcast. So think before you speak. Um, uh, please look at me to be recognized if you'd like to speak, even though I don't know anything about birds. Um, and please limit your questions or comments to about 30 seconds to a minute just so that lots of people can participate, because we usually have more questions than we have time for. Um, likewise, I'll try to give preference to those who haven't spoken yet, just to diversify the voices that we hear tonight. Um, I always hope that this part of our discussion will feel a little bit like a group discussion and not just a Q&A. So please feel free to address comments and questions uh, to the whole group and ask for other uh, participants' experiences, et cetera. Oops. OK. Um, also, we like to foster open discussion and honest debate, um, even as we address topics that may be tense or uncomfortable, but not as uncomfortable as the debate last night. Um, so um, please be nice to each other or else. Um, also, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, um, I'm told that the birds will find out and they will find you. If you haven't seen that movie, I'll just say it doesn't end well. Um, so please turn off your phone. Um, so does anybody want to start us off? Okay. Hey, one little question here. I just wondered, uh, what's the viability of DNA sampling of uh, these specimens? Does it uh, show anything? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, to give a little context for that, uh, nowadays when a specimen comes in, uh, we don't just preserve it as a, a skin or a skeleton or a, a floating in a jar, but we also take many other uh, samples from it. We take muscle tissue, we take organ samples, we take samples of the parasites that a bird might have in its feathers, uh, swabs to look at pathogens, and so those tissue samples go in uh, to frozen collections and those are quite easily we can get genetic data from those. Uh, but going back to uh, the era when this wasn't done, uh, these historical collections are actually really valuable genetic resources, so uh, we do now have the technology to uh, for a tiny little songbird, like one of the field sparrows that Shane um, showed there, to take a little scraping off of its toe, uh, the pad of its toe, and sequence uh, the genome. Uh, and so this isn't uh, Jurassic Park, we're not bringing the bird back to life, um, but there's a lot we can learn from that. Uh, and um, at the collection, we get requests all the time from other researchers who want to do exactly that, to use these historical collections to study something about uh, bird genetics, whether it's how birds are related to one another, or even changes uh, in their populations through time. In some, in some cases, we have uh, historical collections of uh, birds that are much less common today, and the <clears throat> genetics can help us understand uh, how and why those populations actually declined in the first place. So. Yeah, great question. Uh, I'm wondering just what sort of self-selecting uh, uh, may be going on in collecting birds that have crashed into windows. Uh, for example, I could think that young birds uh, who would probably be uh, smaller would be more likely to be confused by the lights than older ones who've migrated before. 
Yeah, that's, a, that's also a great question. I was uh, having this, this same discussion earlier. So, uh, so the short answer is we don't know. Um, and part of the reason we don't know is that there's so much, this migration is happening at night under the cover of darkness. And there's so much we don't know about uh, what's going on and even the, the fundamentals of why these birds are attracted to light in the first place. Uh, we think that that's probably not, um, that sort of um, selection is not what is leading, or not what is kind of creating the pattern of body size decline, because even if, even if smaller birds were preferentially hitting the buildings, we wouldn't necessarily expect um, that to change through time. Um, because even though this is a lot of birds hitting the buildings, uh, it's not enough of them that it would actually like force a change in their, in their, pop, their broader population. Um, however, it very well could be that uh, some birds are more attracted to light or more susceptible to reflective glass than others, and um, we don't know much about that. Do you know if there's certain birds that, you know, escape this? Because that would be very interesting to see if, you know, if you know migratory patterns, you know what birds from eBird data and that kind of thing, can you figure out if there's some birds that don't hit buildings as often? Uh, so I'm not sure if you were planted in the audience to ask me that, but, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's actually, we published a paper earlier this year about uh, this exact thing. Um, so among, oh, try to back up and give you this very brief story. So birds like these uh, white-throated sparrows and um, the warblers and thrushes that hit, hit the buildings a lot. Uh, we've uh, noticed that these birds, these are abundant birds. You know, if you go to a, a cabin in the UP, these are all the birds that are singing, you know, around you. They're, they're boreal forest birds. Um, so it's not surprising that these are the ones hitting our buildings as they're migrating through. Uh, but we also noticed that certain birds that are really abundant were not uh, being found in Chicago or elsewhere. Uh, and so if there's any bird watchers out here, uh, vireos are um, a very abundant uh, family of birds. There are several species that are commonly breed around here and migrate through uh, these places. And in all the years of, of monitoring these bird collisions, very, very few vireos have been found. Um, <clears throat> Long story short, uh, we think that there's actually a behavioral aspect to this. The birds that hit the buildings more often than the others, when they're flying at night, they make calls to one another. Uh, they make these flight calls, they're little chirps, they're barely audible, uh, but it's thought that they help uh, each other navigate. Uh, the birds, turns out, that don't hit buildings at night don't make these flight calls, that they are probably more solitary during their nocturnal migrations. So we uh, proposed that as birds are getting drawn to artificial light, that the ones that have this social dynamic are actually kind of calling to each other, and it leads to a, um, a vicious cycle uh, where they're actually hitting the buildings more and more and more, um, whereas birds that are not making these calls seem to be flying right on by. Um, but that this is a sort of pattern-based science. Um, we haven't done any experiments to like actually show that, but yeah. Do the species that uh, have been brought in locally for addition to the museum specimen collection reflect the graph you showed of the, the species that are most commonly um, are victims of window strikes? Yeah, m more or less. Um, the exception is that because the um, collisions that happen in uh, smaller towns are not so much driven by these nocturnal dynamics, uh, more things that happen during the day, uh, we do get more vireos here. Uh, it's just generally even because kind of across the board, any uh, small bird is susceptible to its reflection in a window. Um, it's a bit more of a straightforward thing, right? It's, it, it can't tell that there's a window there. So there's probably less, bio, probably less interesting biology going on there than there is in, in trying to understand why bird is drawn to a light. Um, but yeah, generally speaking though, we see similar birds coming into our collections. So I read recently uh, in, the, I think it was the New York Times, these articles about the, significant decline in bird population 
And I wonder about the impact of climate change and any work that either of you has been doing that might illuminate what uh, might be possibly behind this phenomenon. Uh, yeah, so <clears throat> if you haven't seen, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of media attention, um, I guess a couple weeks ago at this point, uh, for a paper published uh, in Science Magazine that got um, all kinds of media coverage about uh, bird population declines and the kind of punchline punch line is that um, since 1970, I believe, we've lost 30% of the number, the overall number of birds uh, in, in the United States, and that was um, a lot of intricate data analysis and data sources went into that. Um, as far as why it's happening, um, the major driver of that is habitat loss. If they had to pick one, one single thing, it's habitat loss. Not just here in the United States, but remember that a lot of these birds are migratory, and so they're spending the winter in other places. Um, but the, the major loss, the, the most severe losses were in grassland birds, so conversion of our native grasslands to agriculture. Um, and as far as climate change, um, of course, climate change can accelerate some of these uh, impacts. And so as um, habitats move, uh, tracking climate, as uh, the temporal aspect of when trees leaf out in the spring changes, uh, called, that's called phenology, um, all of these things can, can uh, exacerbate impacts. Tying uh, climate change to the specific declines of, of uh, one species requires more data than they had in this project, but certainly it's, it's part of it. Um, pesticides were also a major part of the story. I don't know if you want have anything to add there. Yeah, a little bit. Um, just specifically on this loss of of grassland habitat, we, um, for me, I like I often think about the think of the Amazon as a a place where we're losing a lot of habitat, and we can actually see pictures of the Amazon and really pristine parts of the Amazon that still exist. And then we think about where we are right now, positioned in the in the Midwest where the tall grass prairies to the south of us and the white pine forest to the north of us, they've essentially been completely decimated 200 years ago in the building of the Midwest and some of the most, um, some of the most uh, decimated landscapes, but um, it's really hard to, like we can't pick up a, a picture of what really pristine tall grass prairie um, looks like now and we have some really amazing landscapes right around us here that um, that we've we've lost in in recent history and um, yeah and a lot of grassland birds we've seen a lot of declines in things like meadowlarks in the region and that rely on these habitats so I have to add one thing so I, uh, I can't miss this opportunity to just say that another major, uh, and I might get things thrown at me for this, but another major contributor to uh, bird populations, and this is real, uh, is outdoor cats, okay? So this is a real issue. Uh, I'm willing to put my uh, card that says ornithologist on the line here uh, for this. Um, cats uh, do kill billions of birds, um, uh, even your, even your cat, I'm sorry to say. Uh, and so um, I would just very much encourage everyone to uh, think about ways they can uh, have their cats spend more time uh, indoors because in aggregate, uh, it really does, uh, it is a major uh, cause of, of bird population declines. Uh, I had a couple questions actually, but I'll try and keep them to you. One was wind power. How big of a deal is that with uh, birds being injured from rain to uh, uh, wind turbines and the second part. Is there any correlation between like colony collapse and food supply with uh, the bird size that you were talking about mentioned earlier? Actually, could you repeat the second question? The I'm wondering if there's any correlation 
Sorry, can you hear me? If there's any correlation between bird size and colony collapse at all? You guys have looked at that, the different variables with that, with uh, food supply and whatnot? Uh, so as, as far as uh, food, um, loss of food could certainly be a part of the story of, of this body size decline. Um, the reason that we don't think it's the primary, although I, not to say that this isn't a problem for birds, but the reason that we don't think that this is what's uh, leading to their decline in body size is that we see very consistent patterns of body size decline across a lot of different species that rely on different kinds of food sources. And so that leads us to believe that um, it's something a little more physiological, like a fundamental process, which is uh, how temperature affects development. Uh, but the truth is that we actually have a very difficult time finding data sets that would allow us to test this, like on, on how much food there would be available through, through time. Um, then wind power, do you? Okay. Um, so yeah, wind power, uh, so this is one of these um, tricky issues where we want sustainable energy, we want clean energy, um, but yes, wind turbines put in the, in the wrong locations uh, do create um, problems for birds, and so um, it's a matter of, it's a balancing act, really. Um, and so the, there are places locally where this is a, a kind of a hot political issue. So Northwest Ohio uh, is a phenomenal area for uh, bird watching. It's also the site where um, wind energy companies want to put turbines in off, offshore in Lake Erie. Uh, and so there's, there's certainly a lot going on there, a lot to, to learn about. Um, but I, I would say that I don't think that uh, the problem is an invented one in the sense that um, I, I don't think it's something that we can just disregard as, as not an issue. It does, wind turbines can't, we have to remember that they're put there, once they're there, they're there. <laughs> it's not a temporary structure, so. How, um, how popular is bird watching today compared to like the early uh, 1900s, and then how important is citizen science in, uh, in orthology? So to, to briefly cover sort of citizen science, I, I would say that it's becoming even, even more common and more necessary, really, with the size of, the size of data sets that we're capable of analyzing and really trying to, trying to, um, trying to build in, to answer sort of really pressing um, environmental challenges and things that um, single researchers or, or small groups just, um, there's not enough time in the day to, and to, to really, to really build these data sets. So like, talk, so like the data set that Ben talked about is really based on um, so many people that had put in time and energy into building um, over, over years, really, to, to build something that we can, we can now leverage to tell us something about our, our, our common environment and the things in our natural world. And the, so the first question was about um, sh changes in bird watching. And I'm going to pass this to, to Ben. Um, well, I don't know if I can put numbers to it, but it's certainly uh, increasing in popularity and has become really popular. Uh, I'd say accelerating in popularity. Um, and yeah, I, I would just say it's really fun. <laughs> and so um, it's, it's not hard to grab a pair of binoculars and, and go out. And there are great uh, local groups where if, um, you know, they're happy to take uh, beginners under their wings, so to speak, and, and show you what, uh, sorry, uh, can't help it, uh, and, sh and show you what's out there. Um, I mean, I started when I was 12 years old and um, joined up with a local bird club in, in Cleveland and uh, was just immediately taken all over the state by um, 
by retired bird watchers who were just so happy to uh, take a young person out birding. And the same thing is true here with the uh, uh, Washington Audubon Society mentoring a lot of uh, younger people who are now going on to do great things. So, yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask about the wing length. Um, somebody at our table had a theory that it might be they need to fly a longer distance to get to the temperature they need for nesting or breeding. Yeah, uh, that's a great, that's a, so we, I can't say for sure that that is the answer, but that is one of the uh, main candidates, uh, which, um, so if you imagine our, uh, we don't need to imagine, if you observe our, our globe uh, warming, uh, it means that certain habitats are moving towards the poles or, or upwards in elevation. And so for these birds that are migrating uh, from uh, boreal forest, for example, there's reason to believe that that forest is actually moving further north. Uh, and so they may have farther to migrate. Um, whether that explains all of the change, we, we don't know, because um, this is actually uh, something that's quite difficult to go back into time, uh, but go back in time and understand exactly where the bird ranges were, but we can, we're thinking about ways we can use historical collections to do that. So yeah, that's a, a great candidate hypothesis. So I think that um, kind of plays into the other part of it where their body size is getting smaller. Um, I know there's probably more than one reason why their body size is getting smaller, but I think it also has to do with probably the climate. If it's warmer, then they don't need to have the bigger body size to stay warm. So it's, le it's more efficient for them to be smaller. Why waste the energy to, to fluff up and be bigger when you don't need to be? Yeah, absolutely. So there's uh, there's a, a actually pretty clear pattern among uh, many animal groups where in colder climates, uh, warmer bodies are are required to actually retain heat better. Um, but the inverse of that is that those war those larger bodies are uh, have a cost, and so smaller bodies are better at uh, giving off heat. So that's absolutely. Well, one sort of facetious question, but uh, has your name anything to do with your uh, professional uh, choice? <laughs> My name, no, it does not. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that has been brought to my attention. Uh, uh, but I, I did grow up playing hockey, uh, and I was a winger uh, there, so I think that had more to do with that. I heard, heard just a brief mention the other day about some update on the status of the curtain warbler, and I wonder if you would comment on that. Yeah, so uh, um, so if you don't know what the Kirtland's warbler is, this is a, this is a Michigan bird. Uh, this is a bird that uh, essentially only breeds um, in the northern lower peninsula of Michigan, uh, a little bit. Uh, in, in Wisconsin on the edges. Um, and they prefer a very specialized habitat. So jack pines only of a certain height. This is a very picky bird. Um, and uh, over the last century, their population declined uh, tremendously. Um, should add, this bird also only spends the winter in the Bahamas. Um, and so it has required a lot of management this is an endangered species, required a lot of management of habitat um, of this bird to bring it back. So if you go, if you've been to uh, Huron Manistee National Forest, for example, um, around Grayling or, or Mayo, Michigan, this is the center of the species range. And a lot is done to, uh, with fire to um, keep the forest at a certain height. And through uh, lots of federal dollars and state dollars, uh, the bird populations have, have come back. Uh, and recently a working group um, got together and decided that the bird populations were strong enough that um, it didn't need to be listed as endangered uh, any longer. Uh, the big question, uh, there was some trepidation though in, in doing that uh, because uh, with the delisting is also the loss of funding to uh, help protect it. So it's just the hope that um, the population is at a point where it can uh, self-sustain uh, but I guess that uh, kind of remains to be seen. 
The uh, discussion of changes um, in, in uh, morphology kind of reminded me of my 1960s ornithology and ecology classes, and I wondered if uh, Allen's rule and Bergman's rule are still uh, still concepts that are, are viable, and whether they're they're kind of looking at that in, in the terms of climate change and the things you're seeing. Yeah. So uh, great question. Uh, so Bergman's so. Uh, Bergman's rule uh, is is a a observation about biology that um, it's kind of the basis for the science that I showed tonight. Where uh, uh, Bergman was a German biologist, and in the 1840s, he he observed that um, birds in warmer climates were, or animals in warmer climates were tended to be smaller than animals in colder climates, and this was. Uh, connected then to the question um, from the other side of the room about the physiology of temperature regulation. And so essentially what we think we're seeing uh, is that pattern uh, not happening over space, uh, but through time. Um, and then uh, Allen's rule, uh, that, that is about um, the length of appendages. So rabbits, jackrabbits with really long ears, they actually can give off heat. Uh, more efficiently, and they're off, those of these long ears are often found in very arid environments. Um, in birds, there's some evidence that, that the length of the beak is related to how hot and dry the environment is, uh, but we're not, we're not seeing that pattern in our, in our data. But certainly those uh, fundamental things from the 60s are still like, uh, very much present in the kind of science we're doing today. Hey, Ben. I was just curious what the latest theories are of how birds know where to go when they migrate, because there's always so many interesting things out there. Is there anything new, breaking news? Um, yeah, so um, one of the, I don't have too much uh, like specific results uh, to share about this, but one of the, I'd say kind of real interesting areas right now is um, how birds use sense the magnetic field of the earth when they're migrating. So we know they can, we know that birds have a sense that we don't have, and, and many other animals as well actually, uh, where they can somehow see and detect uh, the earth's magnetic fields and how it varies over space, and that um, experimentally it's been shown over and over again that when this is disrupted that they have a hard time finding uh, where they need to go. Um, actually, one of my uh, PhD students, Eric, is uh, embarking on a whole dissertation to, to study this, so uh, maybe in four or five years we <laughs> have something more to share. Um, but then the question of uh, how they know where to go uh, is not, so I guess I answered the question about how do they get there, but how do they know where to go in the first place is uh, a real mystery because these birds, um, these songbirds are not migrating with their parents. They're not learning their migrations. They hatch out of the egg and they fly all the way to where they need to go sometimes in South America. Very different than say uh, a whooping crane or maybe you've seen movies of geese that are being trained to follow a, an aircraft. Um, it's entirely different in these songbirds where they, they hatch uh, knowing where to go. Um, and we don't really know how they, how they do that. I want to take this opportunity to let you know that there are little orange sheets on your tables and little little yellow pencils uh, for you to fill them out um, and uh, encourage you to fill out the evaluations because we are nearing the end of our time. Um, I also want to introduce Andrea Scott, who is this evening's sponsor, uh, and say thank you, thank you, thank you very much. Um, and allow her to ask a question. <laughs> thank you, Kira, and thank you for the applause. And I want you to know that I've been coming to these for years, and I got the time wrong. I can't believe it. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask, since you mentioned the Kirtland warbler um, wintering in the Bahamas, well, there's kind of not much of a Bahamas there anymore. And since they've just been 
taken off the endangered list, and you just referred to how did they find a new place to go, I'm wondering if this catastrophe is going to have a major impact on their survivor, survival ability. Yeah, uh, great question. So um, presumably, Carolyn's warblers have been having to deal with hurricanes uh, in the Bahamas for uh, a long time. Uh, it was recently learned through uh, ch putting tracking devices on, on them and actually following individuals on their migration uh, that these birds are actually staying in Michigan uh, and, and parts north um, until almost right about now, which was a huge shock because no one sees them up here after, after July, quite frankly. Uh, they sort of disappear and it's assumed that they go to their wintering grounds. Uh, but they actually have a, uh, a bit of a delay in their migration, and it's possible that there's some selection there to avoid uh, hurricanes. That was a total speculation on my part, uh, but we'll put it out in the podcast and see, see what happens. Um, as far as this last hurricane, um, I don't have all the details, but I've seen some chatter about this. From what I understand, the parts that they rely on for their wintering habitat are... Um, mainly okay, but there are other birds in the Bahamas that are endemic to the Bahamas that never leave. Uh, that are found there all year round where um, there's a nuthatch uh, found there that uh, has probably been much more greatly affected by the last hurricane, but um, I haven't seen actual surveys gone in yet. Um, if you would permit me, I have one question for Shane, <laughs> uh, which is I looked at that um, that map of, of, the, of Michigan, and the, some people are asking about this, and wondering uh, why there's so much uh, mercury up in the UP. So maybe you can answer this. Yeah, so, so this map was, when, when I first saw it, was a bit surprising. I would expect there to be, um, I was actually expecting the UP to be um, a more, uh, less impacted by sort of environmental pollutants, but um, and this is this is work done by the authors that that show this or that that um, publish this, and they attribute this to historical mining that was done um, that is being done in in the UP, and it tracks pretty well to where sort of mining operations have been. Yes, yeah. They, well, they, they they look at sort of different different um, environmental mercury contaminants. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to thank you, the audience, and please thank our wonderful guests this evening. <laughs> <laughs>